Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I hope you're having a good holiday week. We're giving the panelists the week off, but we have something special for you. Last month, I moderated a conversation with U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy at the annual research conference of the Health Policy Group Academy Health. I so enjoyed this conversation, which is mostly about a new Surgeon General report on burnout among health workers, that I asked if I could share it with our What the Health listeners. Everyone was nice enough to say yes. This event was taped before a live audience on June 7th in Washington, D.C. We were introduced by Lisa Simpson, president and CEO of Academy Health, who's the first voice you'll hear. So here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Lisa Simpson. Good afternoon, and welcome to the closing session of the 2022 annual research meeting, our first time all together in person in three years. Yes, thank you. I really think that this has been a memorable four days, and certainly I can say I am very invigorated by, um, you know, just the caliber of the presentations and all of us having such important and authentic conversations. So we are closing with a plenary where we're going to have the United States Surgeon General with us, Dr. Vivek Murthy. So I'm going to start by introducing Julie Rovner, who will lead us in this conversation with our Surgeon General Murthy on well-being as a systemic issue. Julie Rovner is well known to all of us, and she is Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News and the host of the All Women Panelist Podcast, KHN's What the Health, Health, right? Prior to joining Kaiser Health News in 2014, she spent 15 years as a health policy correspondent for NPR, specializing in the politics of healthcare. Um, So let me welcome Julie to the stage and uh, thank them for joining us. Julie? Hi, everyone. (laughs) So thank you all for joining us at this last plenary of the 2022 research meeting. Thank you, Lisa, for your kind introduction. I am honored to be here with Dr. Vivek Murthy, the 21st Surgeon General of the United States, and also for you trivia nerds, the 19th Surgeon General as well. As the nation's doctor, the Surgeon General's mission is to help lay the foundation for a healthier country, relying on the best scientific information available to provide clear, consistent, and equitable guidance and resources for public. As the Vice Admiral of the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps, Dr. Murthy also commands a uniform service of over 6,000 dedicated public health officers serving the most underserved and vulnerable populations domestically and abroad. Dr. Murthy has been one of the busier Surgeon Generals, focusing on helping the country deal with outbreaks of the Ebola and Zika viruses prior to the COVID pandemic, and addressing the opioid crisis, as well as the growing threat of stress and loneliness in America's physical and mental well-being, a topic on which he also wrote a best-selling book, which I highly recommend if you haven't seen it. Dr. Murthy has also worked on the more traditional Surgeon General issues, including tobacco and alcohol use and HIV AIDS. But we're here today to talk about the Surgeon General's latest advisory published in May called Addressing Health Worker Burnout. And I want to start by reading something on the topic that's not from the advisory, which is very good and you should all read it, but from Ed Yong, the Pulitzer Prize winning medical writer for The Atlantic. This is an excerpt from a piece he published last month about the burnout crisis in America's hospitals. 
Ed writes, even in quieter periods, healthcare workers are scrambling to catch up with backlogs of work that went unaddressed during COVID surges, or patients who sat on health problems and are now much sicker. Those patients are more antagonistic, verbal and physical assaults are commonplace. Healthcare workers can also still catch COVID, keeping them from their jobs while surges elsewhere in the world create supply chain issues that keep hospitals from running smoothly. All this on top of two years of devastating COVID surges means that healthcare workers are so exhausted and burned out that those words have become euphemisms. The problems are substantial and numerous enough that, quote, if this moment was occurring without the horror of the moments that preceded it, we'd be shocked, Lindsay Ryan, a physician at UC San Francisco, told me, meaning Ed, the calamity of the last years has numbed us to the calamity of the present moment, close quote. So while things are pretty bleak right now, okay, very bleak, we've been hearing about health worker burnout for many, many years. How urgent has the problem become? Well, Julie, first, uh, it's great to be with you. I know we were last in person a long time ago before the pandemic, so I'm glad that we are together now. And it's so nice to be here uh, with all of you as well. You know, I'm glad we're here talking about health worker burnout in particular. As Julie mentioned, this has been a problem, as many of you know, for long before the pandemic came. Now, the pandemic came and did a couple of things. One is it increased the burdens, both physical and emotional, uh, on uh, health workers across the board. <clears throat> but it also, I think, has created this window of opportunity for the public to understand what's going on with the burnout crisis. And one of the reasons that I issued the Surgeon General's advisory on health worker burnout was because I not only wanted to catalyze and galvanize our country to act, to take the steps necessary to both increase support for health workers, but also reduce the barriers to providing the kind of care uh, that we want to provide and to allowing health workers to spend more of their time with patients and with public health as opposed to with the administrative burdens they're dealing with. But I also wanted the public the broader public who does not necessarily work in hospitals and clinics, to recognize that this was an important issue to them as well. Health worker burnout is a crisis in health for all Americans. And we see that uh, when one in five doctors say that they're planning to leave the profession, when 52% of nurses are saying that they're planning to leave uh, because of everything they have endured, particularly over the last few years, you start to realize that there are going to be and there have already been circumstances where people are trying to reach their primary care provider or they're trying to get care in a hospital and they realize that it's harder because the workforce is shrinking. So I don't think that that connection had fully been made yet by the majority of folks in the public, but we want people to know that this is a critical concern. And the last couple of things I'll say on this is that like most complicated problems in, in society, there's not like one single thing, right, that you have to do to address burnout. Many of you know that having worked in health systems and perhaps experienced burnout yourself. But this is a, one of these times where we have to work on multiple fronts. So in the advisory, one of the things that we lay out is that, uh, one, we, we've got to increase the amount of support for, for health workers. Like, it's too difficult to get mental health care uh, for many people working in the health system, um, especially for many lower-wage health workers. Many of them don't even have insurance coverage, and if they do, they don't have adequate networks necessary to get care. And for those of you who have people that you could potentially see, it, there's not always time in a day where you're working long shifts, uh, especially if you work a lot of night shifts, to be able to actually go and see 
uh, provider. So we've got to increase support. The second thing that we've got to do is look at the quality of the work itself and reduce the burden. I, do, I don't know anybody who went into medicine, for example, saying, you know, one day I really hope to grow up and to be able to fill out paperwork and chart. <laughs> now, that's really my hope, my dream. Like, people went because they wanted to spend time with, with patients. People going to public health want to actually spend time doing the work of identifying threats and addressing them early. Uh, but many health workers find themselves burdened by a number of things that have piled up over the years where it's a growing number of, you know, of prior authorizations they have to fill out or electronic health records that have been designed more for billing than for actual patient care or other barriers, again, that take them away from their patients. And I, I was telling someone this story the other day, but it's time when I was rounding in the hospital with my team when I was practicing up in Boston at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And, and I remember, you know, we were finishing rounding on, uh, on this, and an elderly woman, you know, who we were taking care of, I think she had pneumonia at the time. And she said to us, you know, me, just as I was leaving the room with the team, she said, hey, can I ask you a question? I said, sure, what? She said, I just want to know, where do you guys go all day? She's like, you come see me in the morning, and then late in the day, you show up again to check on me. But in between, I don't see you. Are you guys out golfing? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> And it was really heartbreaking because, as you know, we were not actually out golfing. We were dealing with actually a morass of other things, like trying to get you know, records from other hospitals because the systems weren't connected, trying to battle with insurance companies to get coverage for her rehab bed, like you know, trying to do all of these things, which are part of getting people ultimately the care they need, but often feel like they're burdens that, are, that shouldn't exist in the system, that block us from spending time with the people we're trying to care for. So these are a couple of categories where we have to, to take action to make it easier for people uh, to ultimately get care. And some of this fund fundamentally is gonna, this falls upon not just uh, government to do alone, although government has a role to play here, but we need private payers uh, as well uh, to, to step up and also help to reduce that burden on clinicians. We need to better fund public health, which has been chronically underfunded. Um, and of course, health systems themselves. You know, we've got to design the work uh, that clinicians do in health systems to be collaborative. We need to provide the support that people need in their health systems. So we've got to work on a number of fronts, and that's why in the advisory we lay out specific actions that multiple sectors can take, recognizing if we don't use this moment to finally address health worker burnout, we will lose people that we need. We will not have care available when people get sick. We won't have the preventive care that we require, and we will not be prepared for the next public health emergency. I was so glad to hear you mention people who don't have insurance coverage, for instance. I mean, when we think about the healthcare workforce, we tend to think in terms almost exclusively about doctors and nurses, people at the very top of the pyramid. But shortages of other types of workers can be almost as disruptive to the workings of the healthcare system, right? I mean, who do you count among the healthcare workforce? That's a good question. We define the health workforce broadly. It's the people who make healthcare and public health work in our country. And so if you're at a hospital, for example, it's not just the doctors and nurses, it's the respiratory therapists, the physical therapists. It's the staff that help keep the rooms clean, that help manage the flow of patients, right? Uh, it's the pharmacists, it's, it's others. And it's also public health workers themselves. I know people don't often think about them, but uh, in public health is sort of the invisible field. People only realize uh, that you're, you're there when something goes wrong, right? And, and that's a problem. Uh, but all of these folks are part of the health workforce. One thing that's important I need to say about this, Julie, also is that um, if you only think about nurses and doctors, you're also thinking about socioeconomically a more privileged group, right? But there are millions of lower wage health workers uh, in America, and they are predominantly women. Nine out of 10 of them are women. 
Two-thirds of them uh, are actually racial and ethnic minorities. One-third of them live below, or actually uh, their income is below the federal poverty line. And they have distinct needs as well. Many of them may not have insurance coverage, like I said. Uh, the choice of taking time off from work to go see a clinician might actually put their own job at risk. So we've got to, to, make, to make sure we understand the diversity of the health workforce, uh, and that helps inform many of the solutions we put forward also in the advisory. So if you could only implement one recommendation from your advisory, what would it be? Okay, two. In other <laughs> words, what are the changes that you're recommending that you think are the most important or the most doable? Yeah, well, I, I'm always a little hesitant with, with questions that ask for just the one because as, as Julie knows very well, and I, Julie and I have known each other for a while, and she's a veteran reporter and knows the complexity of these issues. Like, you've got to do multiple things. And even if you just did one thing, if that's all you did, then it wouldn't be sustainable and it would probably fall apart. But if I had to categorize this, I would say there's sort of two areas that are really the most important for us to, to focus on. One is, is making sure that every health worker has access to quality mental health care, which many of them do not have right now. And access is not just about insurance coverage, right? It's about making sure that there are providers, making sure that, those, that you actually have the ability to see uh, those providers in terms of time and schedule. Uh, it also in, involves, it's about culture too. Uh, many of you may remember um, the time when work hour restrictions were first put in place, like in residency training programs. Uh, I remember I was actually just starting my internship at the time. And there were many stories I remember hearing from classmates around the country who were starting internship at that time, that even though the rules were in place, that the culture had not shifted. So no one felt like they could actually work 80 hours a week. They were filling out time cards saying they were working 80 hours when they were really working 100, 110 hours a week. So culture matters too. So that is one bucket, increasing access to care. And the second bucket is making sure we are changing the quality of work of, of clinicians to be, and, and of public health workers so people can spend more time with, with patients and with public health. And right now, if you were to just do an analysis tracking the time that an average doctor or nurse or, you know, in the healthcare system spends, well, you'd see that a lot of that time is not being spent with patients. A lot of it is siphoned away uh, with administrative requirements, inefficiencies in the system that don't contribute to patient care, that actually contribute to costs and contribute to the burnout, the sort of physical and emotional drain on health workers. So these are the two buckets where I think we really need to focus. And I say this knowing that changing workflows isn't easy because these workflows exist for a reason, because somebody has an interest in the status quo, right? And so I'm not you know, naive to the fact that disrupting the current models uh, is going to be easy, but that's precisely why as I think about you know, our decision to issue this advisory, this advisory is more than a sheaf of papers or a report. I, when I became Surgeon General the first time around the Obama administration, my, my goal was really to modernize the office of the Surgeon General and use our products as catalysts for broader act activity in the community, to use them actually as a spark to build movements for change. And that's why, as we have done with our Youth Mental Health Advisory in December, our Health Misinformation Advisory last summer, we are now working with a growing network of partners uh, around the country to make commitments uh, to make critical changes that will ultimately help address the burnout crisis. So one of the issues that I think overlays a lot of, of what you've been working on is the mental health workforce itself. There are not enough mental health providers. You talk about it's really important to make you know, mental health care more available to the health workforce writ large, to you know, young people now with mental health issues from the pandemic and before that. I mean, how do we grow the mental health workforce? I mean, that, they can't, there aren't enough of them to serve all of the needs. Well, there aren't, and I, I think we have to think um, 
I think broadly and creatively about who constitutes the mental health workforce as well. If we think that it's only psychiatrists, for example, can help serve the needs that we have, then we're going to be stuck because it's going to take time to build uh, you know, a, a network of more psychiatrists. I'm not saying we don't need more psychiatrists. We do, actually. But we also need uh, people across the board. We need to think about the, the role that therapists play in schools, for example. We have to think about the role that school counselors play. We've got to think about the role of peer counseling programs and how powerful those have been demonstrated to be in various parts of the country and think, okay, how do we support a broader workforce here that can help meet the needs of the broader public? I'll say one other thing here, too, which is that it turns out that the quality of the work environment has such a big impact on driving demand, too. And one of those elements, actually, is how connected people feel in the workplace. Uh, so it's very interesting. It turns out that there's some interesting data from uh, the late Sigal Barsade, who was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania uh, at Wharton, and actually my old business school professor uh, when I was at Yale. Uh, but she did some really interesting work on the impact of loneliness and isolation in the workplace. And it turns out that when people struggle with loneliness, when they feel like they're, you know, they're isolated, they, productivity is lower, their creativity is lower, their retention tends to suffer, and it actually impacts people around them as well. And for any of you who have had the experience of working, like in a, in a setting where you felt like you were really part of a team, you know, it was hard work, but everyone had each other's backs, people knew each other, they looked out for each other, that feels very, very different than being in a work environment where everyone just seems like they're on their own, right? And a lot of that is not about the moral character of the people. It's actually about whether or not there are opportunities to truly build connection, to build teams and create a culture of teamwork uh, in an institution. And so that's a place where a little bit of investment can go a long way. And <clears throat> again, this isn't about having more company picnics. You know, it's not about you know, having happy hours once a week. I mean, those things help a bit here and there on the margin. But it's about actually taking a more intentional approach to cultivating connection, to allowing people uh, to get to know one another. Um, that part it, of that has to do with workflow also, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, you're, if all of your time is being spent uh, chasing records, you know, and, uh, and, you know, arguing with insurance companies about trying to get coverage for your patient, parents, uh, patients' medications and stuff like that, that's less time that you have. But it also impacts your mood, frankly. You know, like, the, it, it's not like the work of, you know, if caring for patients was easy to begin with, right? This is some of the most physically and emotionally uh, sort of challenging and draining work uh, that we, we do, but we do it because it's necessary, but also deeply rewarding, right? When you siphon energy off of people in these other corridors, which don't necessarily contribute to patient care, you compromise their ability to connect with one another and also to provide care for their patients. So you've been outspoken during your public health career about gun violence. Now we're seeing it intersect with health workforce issues, including a mass shooting at a health care facility in Oklahoma just last week. How big a help would it be to the health care workforce if we could even just lessen the toll of gun violence in America, much less get rid of it? It's hard to know where to start on gun violence. This is profound and disturbing a problem as it's become. You're right. I have been outspoken on it in the past. I've paid a price for being outspoken on in the past. I would still do it anyway. It's important uh, that we talk about this issue which continues to plague our country. But I remember shortly after I, I became surgeon last time, there was actually shooting at my old hospital uh, where one of our, our doctors was actually shot and killed uh, by a patient who was uh, unhappy. And I remember the, the ripples that we felt uh, throughout that hospital, our hospital community of 
you know, it doesn't have to affect you directly to still affect you. And in the wake of what happened in Tulsa, you know, I just remember, I heard from so many friends and colleagues across the country working in health systems who said, like, is there no safe place in America anymore? Like, we are literally trying to save lives, and now we have to worry about our own uh, in hospitals. Um, so if hospitals aren't safe anymore, our school's not safe, our grocery store's not safe, can you not go to church or synagogue anymore? These are all places that should be safe where we have experienced uh, mass shootings you know, over the last few years. And I think that you're right that there, there are many benefits and important reasons to address gun violence. One of them is that, yes, it would lessen, I think, the uh, sort of the traumatic experience that so many clinicians go through uh, when they day after day after day are taking care uh, of people who are struggling with the immediate and, and long-term effects of gun violence. It contributes, uh, I think, to the, the strain that we're placing on our healthcare system and on our health workers. But the most important reason, I think, to address gun violence uh, is because this is a preventable source of suffering. It's one that we actually know how to address. We have the ability, we are not powerless in the face of this. And I know it feels like we are powerless uh, because we are operating in a system where too many of our leaders have failed, utterly failed, uh, to step up and take responsibility uh, for the tragedies that are happening, or at least to step up and take action to address them. Um, but that is a choice. It's not inevitable. And I think when we ex accept that, these are, that we are powerless in the face of this is when there is no hope. But one of the things that I've seen in the course of <clears throat> my own time in public health and in medicine is that when people decide, people in communities across the country together decide that enough is enough, that they want action to be taken, when they're willing uh, to demand that that action be taken from their leaders, that's when change actually happens. You know, the people, I think, in leadership positions who don't want to take action on these kind of issues often bet on the short-term memories uh, of the public. And it is true that in a moment like this where it just seems like there's one tragedy after another that we're dealing with, not just gun violence, but other challenges across, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, et cetera, um, it's easy uh, or it, you know, to move from issue to issue and to never sort of press forward and hold our leaders accountable. But this is a moment where every elected leader in America at the local, state, and federal level should be able to show their constituents what their plan is to address gun violence in America. And if they can't do that, then there's a problem. And their constituents should demand such a plan. So we've got to... We've got to make sure that this time is different. You know, the day after Uvalde, I, I was traveling for work and I flew back uh, to DC and the next morning I took my four and five year old to school uh, to drop them off with my wife Alice. I still remember being there in the parking lot, opening the door, getting out, my son hugging me, and I didn't want to let go. I didn't want him to go to school that day. And I was one of millions of parents who thought twice about sending their child to school the next day. Even though statistically speaking, yes, it was safe for my child to go to school and likely is still for many kids across America, but why should we have to think twice in that moment like that? Why should we have to doubt that our schools, which should be temples in our, in our community, the center of our community, places that are safe and reliable, that they are no longer, why should we have to wonder whether or not we're gonna have bad news when we go to pick our child up 
uh, later in the day. Like, this should just never occur in America. And again, this is not inevitable. We are here because of choices that were made, choices to not take action in the past. And again, it is up to us to make sure it's different. And finally, I just want to say, the people in this room in particular, our colleagues in the field of healthcare and public health, this is an especially important time for us to use our voices. I know it's always tricky when issues that are controversial you know, crop up. You know, people worry, hey, is, this, is it a good idea to really speak up uh, on these fronts? But one of the things I, I, I firmly believe is that our job is to be truth tellers. It's to stand up for the health and well-being of the people that we care for and of our communities more broadly. And if that means that we have to risk being labeled as controversial, then we should do it anyway because it's what matters right now. And there are parents around the country who are looking around saying, who is going to stand up for me? Who is going to demand that there is actual change that takes place here? And I don't want this to be like the Newtown tragedy, which, where everyone thought there was going to be change, and then nothing happened. Where we couldn't muster the courage you know, at a legislative level to pass even the simplest of background check laws to make sure that we could move one step closer to making our kids safer. But let me also just say this. We should not be satisfied with the bare minimum when it comes to preventing gun violence. We should look at these episodes that have happened and say, what would it have taken to prevent those from happening? And it's not gonna be just one thing, which is why we have to demand the series of changes that are required at a policy and community level to prevent these things from happening uh, going forward. I say that because I do not want people to be duped into thinking that one single measure that gets passed is victory and we're done and this is done with. We are not done until every school in America is safe, where parents feel like they can send their kids to school and not worry uh, that they are going to be shot and killed, which are horrific words even to come out and say in the connection with school, but is what communities are experiencing each and every day. So this has to be a moment of courage. This is a moment where your voices matter in holding communities accountable, but your voices are also a source of hope. Because I will tell you from firsthand experience, when parents around the country hear their doctors, their nurses, their public health leaders in their community standing up to say, this time must be different and we will make sure that it is different, it gives them hope that somebody is on their side, that somebody is displaying the courage that we desperately need. We have more questions from the audience than we have time for, but I want to at least ask one or two. Um, one of them, and I think this is related to what you were just talking about, what advice do you have for those feeling discouraged and burned out by the lack of trust from the public for the, quote, war on science? Yeah, well, first let me just say to everyone who has been providing care in these last two years, who's been trying to take care of your communities, who's trying to advance research uh, to help us understand how to be better prepared for the next public health emergency and deal with this one, let me just say a thank you to all of you. You have been doing critical, life-saving work during an incredibly hard environment, uh, and you probably don't get enough gratitude or as many thank yous as you deserve, uh, but I just wanted you to know how much I feel grateful and hopeful uh, because of all of you and the work that I know is happening in our hospitals and departments of public health every day. I know it's, all, it's challenging when you encounter more and more people who have lost faith in science and in the health system, often because they've encountered misinformation, uh, frankly, about COVID or about some aspect of the care that we're trying to deliver. But I also 
want to emphasize that this is also a time when a lot of people are scared and they're worried. And they actually need you, they need our colleagues in medicine and public health more than ever. And for as many stories as they are about people who are feeling, um, who feel less trustful, I should say, about the health system, I also hear so many stories from people on the ground who say how grateful they are that the doctors and nurses in their local hospital are still there, that their primary care doctor hung on and is still there to provide care for their family, uh, that their department of health is still functioning and helping to prevent bad stuff from happening. And they have a greater appreciation now for the importance of public health, uh, because few people actually knew, I think, in the public like well, how important our departments of public health were. So I, I know that this is a very difficult time. But I just want you to know that I keep hearing from people how much they appreciate and know how important it is uh, that you are there doing the work that you're doing. And we will get through this time. We will get through this pandemic. We will be in a better place. And part of our job as a society is to have the backs of health workers who have had ours during the last two and a half years and long beyond that as well. So, you know, for as long as I'm in this role, like my, my goal is to keep pressing on us doing as a government and catalyzing the private sector everything we can uh, to support health workers. Uh, we are, our health workers are the most precious resource we have uh, in the health system. Uh, if they're not there, it doesn't matter how many algorithms, how smooth our EHRs are, how many uh, protocols we have in place, how many medicines we have available, people will not get the care that they need. All right. One last question, and it's very open-ended, so I hope you'll try to keep it brief. Um, despite evidence of the importance of preventive care, the vast majority of our funding still goes to addressing problems after they arise. What can we do? I assume by we, they mean the health services research community. Well, you're right, first of all. Um, we do function, uh, focus predominantly on treatment. Uh, we've become sort of a pill and procedure for every problem kind of society. Uh, as opposed to focusing on the other P that really matters, which is prevention. And I think the way, again, the way that has to change is, is that people have to demand that we invest more in prevention. When prevention budgets get slashed or never invested in the first place, there are no massive protests you know, on Capitol Hill. There are no big lobbies that show up to say, hey, you gotta focus on prevention. That just, that doesn't happen, right? The voice of prevention is a low, soft voice right now. And part of what we have to do is turn up the volume on that by helping communities understand why it really matters. There's nobody I've met across America who says, you know, I'd rather get diabetes and then treat it later than prevent it in the first place. <laughs> but that is how we fund health, like in our country, right? And I think it's important for people to understand the disconnect. Now, folks who are in the research community, like all of you, I think one of the important things I think that we have to do, just to be blunt, is we have to take our research outside the corridors of academia and outside sort of the corridors of published journals. So we have to bring them to communities so communities understand what we are working on. And that doesn't mean just involving communities in the design of the research, it means communicating the results uh, to them also, helping them understand why this matters to them and making sure that they have ways of voicing their support for the kind of prevention agenda that we all know uh, is, is so important. You know, I'll just say this thing. I, I know that many of you are here thinking about the, the role that you have in your, in your professional lives, but I also know that you're experiencing this moment in time, this moment of gun violence, of pandemics, of so many other stressors, just as human beings as well, as moms and dads, as sons and daughters, 
as neighbors and concerned citizens who look around you and perhaps have moments where you wonder, is it really ever going to get better? Is it just going to be one tragedy after another? And I, want you to, I just want you to know you're not alone in feeling that. A lot of people, I think, are, are worried uh, about the future. But one of the reasons that I feel some sense of hope about the future is that I think within the people that I meet all across America, I can still see and feel that there is this flame inside them that wants things to be better, that's willing to step up and be a part of making things better, if only they knew how, if only they had the opportunity to do so. And this is a time where I believe that we need to build a new social contract in America, a social contract that's marked by a commitment to treat each other with dignity and respect, a contract where we commit to looking out for one another and not just for ourselves, and a contract where we commit to common sacrifice for the common good. Right? Public health is fundamentally about that. It's about recognizing that we are stronger when we band together, when we take certain actions that may not protect me today, but may protect me tomorrow, uh, and ultimately we make my whole community stronger. And so we need a different conversation about building that social contract. That's not something you pass a law about. That's something you build at a local level. It's a shift in culture. It's a shift in the expectations that we have of each other. And that's manifested in the programs that we choose to support and build, in the leaders that we choose to support and vote for, in how we live our own lives, right? That's how we reflect our deeper values. And this is a values moment where we have to decide, are we gonna recenter on the human values that truly bring us together, that we want to see reflected in the lives of our kids, values like compassion, kindness, and generosity? Or are we gonna allow fear and polarization and anger to continue to divide us and dominate our lives? That's the choice that we have. And I know it doesn't feel like it's a choice we individually can always affect on our own. None of us on our own can flip a switch and change how the whole country behaves. But we each have spheres of influence in our life. We can choose how we treat the people around us. We can choose whether we contribute to the angry rant on Twitter. We can choose whether we speak up in the public square. We can choose who, what kind of leaders we support. And the values of our leaders matter so much because 99% of the decisions our leaders make are ones that you do not see. Because you can't, because they're being made in the middle of the night when the crisis arises or in, the, in a meeting around a round table. And so what you're left to trust is the values of those leaders, whether they're CEOs in a business or whether they're the principal of your school or whether they're elected leaders. And so I think we need to recenter ourselves on those human values as we make our way through this pandemic and rebuild what I think is the most important foundation for society, which is our values, and values which are often most easily manifest in our relationships with each other. You know, one of the reasons Julie mentioned that I have been you know, working on the issue of loneliness and social connection so much, one of the reasons why we are actually going to have a broader initiative to roll out on this uh, in the months ahead is because our relationships are the foundation for our health and well-being, right? As much as we may believe in a cause, many of us know that you, know, the, you may come to the table for a cause, but you stay at the table because of the relationships that sustain you, right? And this is a chance for us to rebuild those relationships, embody our values in our relationships with family, friends, co-workers, neighbors. And so that's what I hope we can draw out of this moment, is a recommitment uh, to those core values and 
use this as a moment to make sure that the future is different for us, for our children, and for future generations. So I appreciate the role that all of you have in that. I appreciate you being here, everything you've done these last two and a half years in particular. And again, I do think that there are brighter days ahead. I think it is up to us to decide how quickly those days come and how sustainably they last. On that note of optimism, thank you very much. Okay, that's our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to producer Francis Ying, who makes all of this possible. And special thanks this week to Academy Health and the Office of the Surgeon General for allowing us to share this conversation. If you want to read the burnout report itself, we'll post a link on the podcast page at khn.org and in our show notes. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. We'll be back in your feed next week. Until then, be healthy. Yeah.